listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big-budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. My guest today is a French-Canadian award-winning filmmaker who really made his mark in 1998 with a classical mystery film, The Red Violin a story about five mysterious violin owners in five different countries spanning 40 years. He has a passion for music and has even won a Grammy in 1996 for a video he shot with Peter Gabriel. Some of his filmography includes films like Cargo, Silk, Boy Choir with Dustin Hoffman, Husalaga, Land of Souls, and his new film, The Song of Names, starring Clive Owen and Tim Roth. Francois Girard, welcome to Shoot It Now. Hello, how are you? Good, mate. Great to have you on the show. I got to ask you first off about that Grammy that you won for Secret World Live. Tell us how that came about, working with Peter Gabriel. That's the only thing I've ever done live, like a, a live production. It came to me unexpectedly. Peter came to me and asked me if I would shoot it, like to adapt it into a, um, a feature-length film. And like many others, like a, a fan of Peter's work, and I've been following it from his early beginnings uh, with Genesis. And I uh, joined the band, like I followed, the, I traveled with the band for three months studying the show, and we came up with this very complicated, like multi-camera shoots where the cameras are moving song to song. And then I had the tremendous pleasure just hanging around these guys, like a great, great band became good friend of with Manu Kachi and like Peter, who's been like a real gentleman, a real pleasure to work with. Apparently it had the recognition in the academy and then we won that Grammy. Like and it felt very accidental to me. Well, how, how cool is that? Because you love music and just to go on the road with these guys for three months, you must have reveled in that. Yes, absolutely. Following them, being with them. Like there's this um, band that was uh, touring with Peter, Papa Wembe, and they did the, uh, every night they did the, uh, the, first, uh, the first part, like the opening uh, show. We would all gather with Peter and the band we, and we would dance backstage to warm up for his band. And then we would hit the floor and like, oh, they would hit the floor and, and perform the, this incredible show. And with some music that I've grew up with and some others like, or lived with and some new songs that I was discovering then, really, truly wonderful. Well, I said that you made your mark in 1998 with the Red Violin, but several years earlier, you were the winner of the Best Canadian Feature Film Special Jury Prize for 32 short films about Glenn Gould. That happened back in 1993. So, Francois, what made you become a filmmaker? Let's go a little bit further back to the beginning of how you got started. I actually grew up playing a lot of music and I had my jazz band and I was a, and still am like a self-taught pianist. I had some dreams of composing scores, like being a, a, a film composer. And, uh, but that didn't last very long because I, I knew that I didn't have the, um, the chops, the skills to like to achieve that because I took a, a different route. And then I became a video artist and, Piano and music remain in my like life. Something I I do in dilettante, and I'm I still today like a a closet pianist and I play only for my friends. <laughs> 
but music is like the, probably the first language that I really learned to speak and it was always with me and then then I became a video artist and a filmmaker and music was always a, a fallback position like I think my mind works in in music like I'm structuring thoughts in music more than in, in words I think it shows in my film even if they're not about music or not based on music your latest film, The Song of Names, is a character-driven piece. It's a film, though, that could easily have been dominated by music, but the characters and their stories are never competing with the music, which was, uh, I, I felt, a real conscious decision by you to shine a light on their characters. Was that a hard-balancing act to bring to this film? Well, if anything, I was actually resisting making it about music. And if it was about music, I don't think I would have done it. At first, when I read the script, right at the uh, center of the piece of the book by Norman Lebrecht and script by Jeffrey Kane, there is uh, the song of name. And one of the characters will turn that ritualistic song into a violin piece. And I was reading the script, I thought like I was sort of resistant to go back to a something that had anything to do with violin, you know, didn't want to go back to my earlier and best known film, The Red Violin. And but eventually, like looking closer at the, at the script at the book, I realized that it was not about that. There's a song, of course, and the song is central, but that's a, a narrative trigger for something that is deeper in tones and that is the um, the Holocaust. And then then you get you engage into a, a mission, I guess, which is a mission of remembrance. I wonder if you could set up Francois a little bit of a synopsis for those people that haven't seen the film, The Song of Names, and just tell us a little bit about what the film's about. Well, the film starts with with a concert, and in that concert, like twenty year old prodigy is announced and will play in London in 1952, only the young virtuoso doesn't show up and the impresario, we have arranged all of this, will go bankrupt and eventually die out of that disastrous uh, experience. And the son of that man will be looking for the prodigy like for more than 35 years until he finds him. And, and then, so you keep going back in the childhood of these two kids, like one Polish kid, the prodigy in question is a Polish kid adopted by a British family. These two half-brothers, two kids adopted, will grow up a really strong brotherhood, like a relationship, which is in that concert abruptly interrupted. And 35 years later is the time to explain what happened. Like the, he finds him and they will confront the truth of what happened on that day and before. And of course, it starts, doesn't it, in what, World War Two? It starts in 52, but it goes back to World War Two. Like that concert is the, the central pivotal trigger is in 1952, London. But then you go back to the like the childhood that led to that point. Like, yes, it takes place in the, the two kids are growing up in, in war, during World War Two. A little complicated time structure, but I think it flows nicely in the end. But it keeps going back between 1986, which is the time when uh, uh, Martin finds Davidol, and the time that they grew up together. And I heard you say that 50% of people younger than the age of 30 don't know the word Holocaust. It's filmmakers like yourself that help propel and keep alive the memory of history. 
And we forget in 2020 that this might be the case with the younger generation. It certainly shocked me to learn that, and I'm sure it's shocking to others as well. If these stories by filmmakers are not told, then the statistics will only get worse. And if we can't remember history, there is a greater chance of repeating it. Did it feel like somewhat of a mission and almost a responsibility for taking a a project like the Song of Names, you know, going on this journey? Yes, uh, uh, absolutely. The um, I think we're all collectively increasingly captive of the present technologies that um, are surrounding us. The little screens that we have in our hands or on our desk are sort of sucking us into the present of the present. And then we become, I think, more and more detached and uh, lose touch with the past and the future. And, and you just said it beautifully. It's, if we cannot keep track of the previous generations and what happened and the victories and the beautiful things that happened, but also the incredible, horrible chapters in genocides and holocausts and other dark corners of our history. Like if we cannot keep sight of that, I think we are handicapped in facing the future. Film, I think, is still a beautiful vehicle to travel in time and to escape from that, the jail of the present. Uh, but it's, you know, like literature does the same thing, music. I think as an artist, I do feel responsibility to address that and, and look back and, and look forward. Like, like I'm just working on a project now that is not set in the past, but in the future. And, and it's a similar experience where you're trying to get perspective on what's happening now. And God knows that there's a lot happening now. So I think, I think it's important to step back, take some distance or some altitude and try to understand the, the larger arcs that are driving our world at the moment. Your latest movie, The Song of Names, Academy Award winner Howard Shaw, I believe, worked with you on the original music for nearly two years. It's an incredible amount of time. Must have been a creative uh, collaboration. Can you tell me a little bit about that process, especially you loving music? Uh, That must have been a real thrill for you. And how did you entice Howard Shaw into the film? I, uh, of course, followed Howard Short's career um, from the beginning. Like, uh, Howard like, wrote all the musics for David Cronenberg, and I'm a great fan of David Cronenberg's work. I, I grew up looking, looking up at David Cronenberg's work, uh, who's a fellow Canadian, but also for all the other films that he scored. Uh, so, like, he's a major film composer. Of course, we're well aware of his work. What surprised me is he was also aware of my work. It was a very easy uh, collaboration, but then in the sense that right from the top, we knew what we had to do. And, and the first thing was to tackle that thing that is the written the title, like the song of names. And we needed to figure out what that song was before we could do anything else, like uh, almost as if we had to dig out the, uh, the DNA code and the film. And in that, like, like the, the song is a rit- ritual, spiritual Jewish song, like uh, it's a, a song of remembrance. But Howard went back into his past because the song, as it exists in the film, is heard by Davido, our lead character, in, in 1952, which is the time that Howard himself was visiting synagogues and 
he had that in his past. So it took a long while for Howard to retrieve that past, uh, surround himself with incredible like um, Jewish musicians to find these people and go for the truth of that piece. And it's often like this, like this one minute and a half of music in the center of the film took a year and a half to find. And once we had that, it's like, you know, finding the seed and then you just plant it and give it some water and it grows. Uh, the rest of the soundtrack was much easier than like finding the, the exact melody of that song. Having a look at uh, casting a film, it's often a puzzle of figuring out how all of the character pieces fit together. Now, you latest film, The Song of Names, I feel because you have the lifespan of characters from a young boy to an older man, this becomes even more of a challenge. And to compound it further, you have the playing of the violin. Uh, just how difficult was that to put all of the casting pieces in place for your latest film, The Song of Names? Yeah, you're, you're right. Like, I, I mean, like the contribution of a director to a movie, 50% of the impact a director has on the movie is choosing the actors. And everything else, every, everything else you do over two years, over three years, over one year uh, is the other half. The human beings you bring in front of the camera just choosing them, picking them, putting them together is essentially the greatest impact that you will ever have over the piece. That notion grows in you as you grow older. You realize the good picks you've done, you realize your past mistake. And the more you go, each new film, like you know, you know, you have to get that right. If that's not right, nothing else will be right. In this case, there was an um, additional stress where, and that was very, um, highly visible right from the top. When I read the script the first time, I immediately saw that I was in front of a, a real challenge. That turned out to be the biggest, my biggest challenge in this movie was to uh, bring these two characters to life. Martin and Davidol are a pair at uh, 10 years old, at 20 years old, and at 55 years old. Like we grow, like it's not only 10 and 20, like we go 10 to 20, and then we meet them again in the 55. And so I needed three actors for each of them. You're sort of putting together three pairs or two trios, whatever way you look at it, and you move one piece and the whole thing becomes unstable. So you're really looking for a group of six actors to create two parts. And Martin and Davidol, I think there's one scene in the entire movie where they're not there. So like that challenge is in, was in my face every page of the script, in every shooting day, in every day of the, in the editing room. It was a battle from beginning to end. You know, like this is where most of my attention and my work went. We started by finding the older ones like Clive Owen and Tim Roth. Then we found the, the younger ones, and then and, and it was a long it was a long journey. It was a long year of searching and and finding. And it feels like there's been a good amount of time spent in workshopping with the actors, maybe more so with the younger ones. The actors, of course, had the accent coaches to deal with, the violin coach, a lot going on with the actors. So workshopping, I imagine, would have been a critical component to getting all of that working in the right direction in a rhythmic timing kind of a way. Was that the case? 
Yeah, well, I mean, like with every actor, it's a different process. And with the, in this case, it was not only actors, there was a young musician. And I have to say that the, uh, to be completely honest, the, the Davidals worked a little harder than the Martins in the sense that I have three British actors and Luke Doyle is the young one, is a violinist. So we found an 11-year-old violinist in, in Wales and brought him to, gave him his first acting experience. Uh, luckily, the kid was like brilliant, but he still had to learn to act and then learn an accent on top of it, like worked with a dialect coach to get the, um, you know, pretty strong Polish and Yiddish accent. And then, then I have uh, like uh, the uh, Jonah Howard, like a wonderful actor who had to learn to hold the violin and, and, and sing and play. Like, um, so he went through an extensive process of learning and also had to learn an accent, like a Polish accent. And then Clive had to work on both the accent and the, the violin playing, which was at times terrifying. Actors are brave and musicians too. So like uh, if they trust you, they're going to put up the work and you get somewhere. And I want to talk about uh, some of the actors that you've directed, including Dustin Hoffman, Tim Roth, Clive Owen, as you mentioned, Kathy Bates. There's always this intrigue that people talk about, which is almost like a fear factor of how directors approach working with experienced actors. A lot of our indie filmmaker listeners uh, haven't yet had that experience, but I would imagine that it's no different to working on an indie film or a studio-backed bigger-budget film. The process is still the same. You have to make the movie. And it's the same thing. It's it's relevant for box office actors when it comes to directing them. Is that, is that how you work? Yeah, well, I mean, like, the celebrity factor disappears very early on. Like, And then, like, whether you're working with a, um, a star or an unknown actor with great talent or great experience, which there are a lot, there's all sort of circumstances that turn a great actor into a star. And there's a lot of great actors who didn't get to that fame but still know their craft. The celebrity factor disappears really early on and you find yourself in front of a text with an actor, you are companion, companions in, a, in an adventure and you need to dig, dig, dig the part and find a way. And it's also each actor is working differently, needs different support, different kind of supports, like it has a different path to get to the part. Tim Roth and Clive Owen take a completely different route to get to their part. And it's the work of uh, the job of a director to recognize that early on and see that process, read that process uh, before it happens. Yeah, the celebrity factor is like not so important. Like it's there, you got the great actors and you got the bad actors. I'm trying to stick to the good ones and I've been quite lucky in, in, in my career. What would you say the number one important thing is for independent filmmakers that are listening now? Because at some point you get the opportunity to direct, uh, as you say, a celebrity actor. What's probably maybe the number one thing that you could give our indie directors as a bit of advice when and if they get that opportunity? What I would say, like, I don't think we should, like, a director should approach a celebrity differently than any other actor. Like, there's the work to be done and the celebrity or not all actors are facing the same kind of challenge. You need to know your text. You need to know your project. You need to know the character. If you want to be able to provide great support to an actor, you need 
to know what the part is made of, what the text is like. You need to know it inside out, and, and then eventually you meet you meet a companion who's had his own preparation, and you will click at certain levels and confront at certain others, and you will see things differently and fire seek resolutions. I think uh, it's true to any collaborations between artists. It, it's true. I mean, prep. Just prep, read, prep, dig and research and find the good references and the good books that you might bring around that part that is going to be helpful. Directors are sitting in the dark in the theater or behind a camera on a film set. The actors have the courage to show up and expose themselves. They're vulnerable. Even if they don't appear to be, they're always vulnerable. And then it's a, you have, I think, as a director, a, a responsibility to protect them. You're right, because nobody knows your film like you do. You're the director, it's your film, an A-list actor steps on set, still comes with the vulnerability of a lesser-known actor. They will still want to know what is going on inside your head. So don't be intimidated. It's your film, and you need to articulate what that film is and what you need from the actor, whether they're an A-list actor or a less-known actor, which is why at the top I mentioned it's no different to making a film on, say, 500000 to a $50 million film. You've still got to make the film. It's still got to hold together. Well, that's that's the other thing. Like I think I've learned pretty young because I, I don't know how I, I was exposed to small and big fairly young and now still nowadays like you know i just did the, the tiniest play uh, that closed on sunday we had a, a beautiful run here despite the covid uh we like the theaters where we opened for uh, a month and we were able to squeeze a, a one-man show in the national theater here small or big uh like that's another thing that should never be a factor yes you know if you're doing a 50 million dollar movie like there'd be more trucks on 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 your way to set but that you have to learn to ignore no matter what you do there'll be a text there'll be an actor and there'll be an audience and that's essentially what your work is about is to create that connection between something to say someone to say it and someone to listen and then you are the orchestrator of that relationship of that of these connections and whether that happens in a tiny set with a vulnerable character with one in a sequence shot because you don't even have like because it's that small or it happens with 500 extras with crane shots whatever else makes it big is the same it's the same process it will it will succeed or fail on the same issues uh do you care for this guy do you care for what he says are you filming him right and whether there's uh an army of of soldiers behind the character or not like is you still have to make that that first connection work huge films and tiny films fail and succeed on the exact same factors on the same elements and Casting known actors to fit the template of funding and potentially the red carpet events that follow versus shaping your own casting organically and giving the roles to the best actor, 
is always bloody frustrating to filmmakers of all experiences. And looking at a recent film of yours, Husalaga, Land of Souls, it's an epic film piece put together and told imaginatively and uniquely. Uh, the acting performances were all there, uh, but they weren't box office names. I wonder how frustrating it is for you when the film as a whole doesn't reach its pinnacle because of a formulaic film business model? Well, in that case, it was a very, uh, it was an organic reality where I'm, I was making the, a film about where I am right now. I'm actually like, it's a film about that takes place at the foot of a mountain, looking at 750 years of the same land. As I speak to you, I see, I'm, I see that land. And, and you have to embrace the reality of what you've written. And you, I knew it right from the top that it would not be a star piece. And then like you do another piece where you need the stars or you, you have no movie. And that, that has its own uh, difficulties and frustrations. The market is working in a really weird way. Like the, every time I go to, uh, into, into that, the casting, like what I consider a star or what I think my A-list, what my A-list famous actors that I would love to work with, you turn around and, and suddenly uh, studios or distributors will consider, will, won't even consider them A-list because they haven't won an Oscar in the, in the past two years. The way that the market works uh, could be quite silly at times and frustrating, but you have to find your way through that. You know, it's understandable that uh, distributors and marketers need names to secure the money. Like, Despite those needs, you always have to cast the right people. You can destroy or make a movie on cast on just in, in one choice. Francois, can you just explain Husalaga? How were you able to put all of those pieces together to get that film funded? Because you can either, as a director, try to go for that A-list acting talent or you just be very pragmatic and say, I want to make this film in the next two years. This is how we do it. For some reason in my career, I ended up filming everywhere but home. Like 32 short films about Glenn Gould was shot in Toronto, which is English Canada. Like it's not like it's neighbor country, but not my home. And then uh, Red Violin is in five countries and then there's uh, Silk and so on. And there's a moment where I felt this great need to uh, film my place, my land. And uh, there was an anniversary of Montreal, like the 375th anniversary of Montreal in 2017. I gave myself the mission to celebrate my land. Like that was the initial trigger for this adventure. And I gathered companions and the film couldn't have been done a year before, a year after. It had to be done that year. This is what came out of it. And I want to look at shooting times. Uh, the Red Violin, I think, was shot on 60 days, something like Boy Choir, a hell of a lot less. Is it true for you that the longer days that you have to shoot, the longer time that you have to ferment and shape the film, which leads to more creative discoveries, but a shorter time to shoot, there's a lot less time to mull over and ponder about what you're doing? In other words... You just get on with it. Sometimes just getting on with it in a fast way can be beneficial for a film. So tell the audience, uh, Francois, how you look at those two polar opposites 
and implement your workload? Well, you put it um, like in a very eloquent way. And also, you're very well informed. How, do you, how did you find out how many days I had for Red Valid? I, I did have uh, 64 days, which is the most I've ever had. And in that case, it was needed. Like we were like setting and restarting with a new team in five different countries. And we were a very small core team. So we needed to be careful and like, you know, establish relationships like and not push it. In retrospect, I realized how much of a luxury it was. I never had that time after. Like it, this is the most I had. And but you also write to say because I, I've always thought of myself as a, the slow guy. Like you know, if I can, you know, give me ten years to write a movie and I'll take it and I'll be happy to do it. Like mm -hmm. in ten years, and then in length and in time, you could also lose the energy. You could also overthink. You can lose yourself. Sometimes in precipitation, when you're forced to forced to hit a deadline, if you're forced to shoot faster, there's an energy in it, and that could be uh, that you could turn to your advantage, and that could serve the piece. And sometimes thinking and thinking time, and you know, over brewing everything is not like helping. Sometimes there's another part of yourself as an artist that could be put to work. Uh, the heart the the physical impulses and the energy into moving fast with a large group of people there's stuff in that that you know could be very productive every adventure every film every theater every play every opera has its own rhythms and it's almost like if Sometimes the text and the nature of the piece is imposing its own rhythms on you. And then it's becoming more about reading that and embracing it than trying to put your own rhythms. You find very, like early on, like you find that your level of control is very slim, especially in film, but also in other mediums. But in film, you play a lot with nature. Like there's a, a great dance with sun, with the weather, with the skies. And you got, there's two ways you can go about it. Like if you, if you shoot the games of Thrones, you, you, there's so much light that you can access that you can actually beat the sun and make day and nights and nights and days. You have to dance with the sun and you have to dance with what happens. And you're not going to be, if you're trying to control it, you're going to lose. And talking about light, with your latest film, your cinematographer, David Franco, I do like the way that he lights and creates ambient shadows. When you're working with a DP, how hands-on are you? In other words, are you the type of director that is more broad strokes or more detailed from scene to scene working with your cinematographers? I think I tend to leave the light to the cinematographer, but I'm closer to language, to the frame, to the uh, storyboarding, to move the camera around and pick a lenses so the, the like that is would be more composition is more i've got better results when i stepped out of light lighting and let david is a master of you know everybody's trying to do dark like everybody loves dark david can do dark and show every face there's not one shot where you won't be able to read the face although the film is quite dark and that's an art because there's a lot of younger not necessarily younger, like lesser DPs who will go dark and then dark is all you see. So David has a, a, a real talent at keeping that balance. 
and I will let it let him do it because I'm I, I love his light so much and I I'm busy when he does it anyways. But placing the camera, moving the camera, and picking the lenses has always been uh, something I was close to. And storyboarding, do you do that as well as shot listing? Yes, but I've learned my first film was all storyboarded before I started shooting. And then the next one was less storyboarded. And then what I discovered, and I'm trying to push that, I follow that rule as much as possible. The later you make the decisions, the better. If producers, if there's special equipment that needs to be used, so probably it's possible that a couple of weeks or three weeks or sometimes months in advance, you need to design a shot. Because people need to know because you're playing with expensive toys and because you're in a very crazy location, sometimes because of your own ambition, you have an ambitious shot. But if you can decide the morning of the shoot, like sitting with your DP and flip the whole scene because suddenly you discovered that your actor or your actress reads better in a different, like whatever you've learned from what you've done the day before, like uh, this, it's so intangible sometimes. Uh, Sometimes a profile will be, a left profile would be preferable to the right profile. And if you should be sensible to those things and that a certain lens will land great with uh, uh, this actor, not so well with this other actor. And if you learned that yesterday, then change your decision if you can this morning. By the time the camera shows up on set, you, you, everybody should know where you want it. But the later you're gonna make that decision, so it's a trade. Like, you know, if you can make it late, then use a luxury. And if you need to do it early, like serve the team, serve the, serve the production. But I would say the later, the better. So do you normally have a shot list or have you shot a film without any shot list? Like a shot list, like written on, uh, on the text processor? No, I would draw a lot. Show up on set with a piece of paper that is a, uh, all positions. Sometimes I would do it in the car going there and my assistant would go in a Xerox, uh, copier. And as people show up on set, they would get, they would get their diagrams and language and they get on set and they know where, they know where we're going. They know, they know what's happening. They know the dance. You find a way to communicate the dance to the large number of people are around you. And what's the favorite process for you? writing shooting or post-production with editing when you finish one you want to you you miss the other like i think you need to learn to embrace all of those steps some directors uh, are not writing and some writers are not directing and the editing I've, i started as an editor like the first thing i did was a uh, editing like for uh, other people when i was uh, when i started I have a fondness for editing. That's a very powerful process where you, where you can change everything, even if when some think you can't. <laughs> so it's a very creative process, and I, I love editing. Yeah, me too. And do you feel more comfortable directing your own screenplays? That's an interesting question because I came late at other people's screenplays. Boy Choir was my first one and Song of Names is my second one. And I grew to like that because what happens is that, first of all, I got, you know, like if you work with another writer, like you come from a very respectful position, you know, writing is a very difficult, very physical. It's a very physical act. Like you got to sit on that chair for so long. You know, it costs sometimes more energy than driving uh, D-Day. It's a really like tough act and you need to sit there and it's solitude and you don't have the stimulation of people around you. So if I didn't write, I would come to writers with great respect and very in a very 
collaborative way, but you get on set and then you get a little more distance toward that text. You like, it's not like you didn't bleed so much for it, for the paper. I mean, and then, so if an actress starts to pe- speak the line, like, uh, or if you engage into conversations about the line, so you, you won't be like, if you wrote the script, you would get into, you find yourself in a protective position and it might blind you. Like, where, like, I, I, I like the fact that you're a little more detached from the text itself, from the, the sweat on the paper and the blood on the paper sometimes, and then be a little more open to what's happening in front of me when the actor reads the lines. And that gets, puts you in a position of sometimes I think, I would like to think of better judgment. Although I wouldn't hesitate to change my own text if it doesn't work, if it doesn't sound right. That's interesting because you could say that your own screenplay, your own words, maybe you're a little bit more, how should we say, one-dimensional with your thinking, whereby with somebody else's screenplay, you might be a little bit more open. It opens up some more possibilities. Is, Is that one way of describing it? If you've been battling with the page for a year, two years, sometimes, you know, Red Vine took three years to write. And then, then comes the time, like, you know, to give it to an actor, you're, there's a possessiveness that might easily tra- transfer or translate into defensiveness, right? Like you give it to an actor. And especially if you're in your own language where you're a little too close, there's a moment where you have to step back. The work of a director is to be the audience before the audience shows up. When you listen to an actor, it's a little harder to achieve that if you wrote the, uh, wrote the piece. If you didn't, it's a little easier to find you know, the position of an audience, take that perspective and hear it, see it for the first time. I want to come back to the Song of Names. It was released, I think, prior to COVID breaking out, but probably has impacted the film in the cinema releasing into different territories around the world. Can you tell us the timeline and how much of a problem COVID with your latest film has been a problem? Uh, I would say that the wave of release was prior it might have affected the end of it but not much but the release of traveling with the film and meeting distributors and financiers and producers and studio people and what happened last year prior to covid there was a first wave that was pretty brutal on the indie international film industry was hit by a tsunami of streaming. We all knew it was coming. It was evident that there's a point where the pipe would be big enough to stream a movie in 4K and there's people would stay home. Uh, it was predictable. Although the, like I think the film world lived in a denial of that, but it happened and it happened last year. There was early signs of that. The Netflix and the, this world started to exist prior. I can see from my perspective that last year, from Sundance of 19 to Toronto of 19, and then I would, I think most distributors and most film buyers uh, will tell you the same thing and producers. Last year was the tsunami of streamings where suddenly there's this huge transfer. You can see it just by driving Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, where suddenly you're not seeing the major ads of uh, blockbuster movies. Suddenly you see giant ads of blockbuster TV series. And there is a clear time of transfer where there's like the shift. In a way, it's put our world to its knees and we have to 
embrace it to a certain extent and go with the chi of it. But then right after that comes COVID and then all the theaters closes and we haven't seen the other end of that. When we all wake up, I think it will be a new world. Like the streamers have greatly benefited from last year shift and from the COVID pandemic. I think there'll be a complete restructuring of the way we finance, the way we like show, uh, the way we make also probably like the formats have changed. I'm screening a lot of TV series and there's no discussion or no doubt that if like, you know, if you go from 90 minutes to two hours to three hours to 12 hours to 54 hours, that the length and format of any piece will have a huge impact on its nature. I think I'm witnessing from both the viewer and the maker's end, I think I'm witnessing a revolution. I think we're, it's a very deep and rooted changes that we're going through. I think you're right. The revolution has definitely transformed the film industry without doubt. Francois Girard, it's been great finding out about you as a filmmaker today. You certainly have an impressive body of work to date with much more to follow. And I encourage uh, people to check out your latest film, The Song of Names. Thanks again for sharing your stories with us on Shoot It Now. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.